This is love. The resurrection changed everything for us. Because of the resurrection, we know that what, you know, we know what the cross is all about because of Easter. We've studied it over time. We understand the meeting of Good Friday and, and what leads up to it. At the cross, Jesus died in our place for our sins. Jesus entered uh, into pain and, and really our pain, our shame. Jesus came and, and took the weight of evil itself so its power could be broken. And because Jesus didn't stay in the grave, we see the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ is God in his love freeing us from sin. God in his love overcoming death. God in his love announcing that one day a new creation will come. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see the love of God not only into this world but into our lives. When we look at Jesus, we can say, this is love. Today I want to talk about that first part, about God in his love freeing us from sin. Now, how many of you love talking about sin? Any, any takers? How many of you like thinking about sin? Oh, man, when my little boy, when he gets in trouble, he can't stand to think about him being in trouble. Like every little child, he likes to ignore the sin part of his life because sin is not a popular word. Actually, sin is a very confusing word. One of the things I try to teach you know, both my children is, is about asking for help. And, uh, you know, on one hand, I want them to try new things. And, in fact, we were out camping, and, and they had a rope swing, and kids are just swinging off that sucker. It's coming off a hill, going way out. And I'm like, oh, and Brandon's wanting to try it. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm trying to, I want them to try, but at the same time, the father of me wants to protect them, right? And they're doing it without helmets and everything else. And I'm like, Put on your helmet. <laughs> you know, like that's going to really help that one. And then, of course, he gets really used to it. He's having a blast. And then the next day he goes out with mom and does the same thing. And his hands slip and he goes sliding down the hill and, and hurting himself. We want our kids to try. Now, that's not a sinful thing. But imagine trying things that are sinful. I want him to try to, to learn the things that, are, that he's good at and what he might not be good at. But asking for help at the right moment is a key to maturity. I can remember when Brandon was younger, he would get so frustrated when he couldn't do something right. And, uh, and this goes all the way. I mean, he would even use his other hand to, to write the alphabet and help trace it because he wanted to do it right. And, and he would get, you know, he would just get, he would just get so frustrated and shake, you know, when he couldn't do something. And, and that perfectionism, I guess he gets both from, from Lisa and I, probably more than Lisa, uh, than me, but you know, but the hard part is asking for help on something that you haven't done before. But it's even harder when it's something you have done. You should already know it. And you know you should already know it. So you skip the asking for help part. And usually what happens is what? We create a bigger mess. As a parent, when I see the mess, my question is, well, why didn't you ask for help? 
I would have helped you. All you had to do was ask. But before that response comes, the answer becomes apparent. It's hard enough to ask for help, but it's even harder to ask for help on something that became a mess by your own making. This is how it is with adults also. We don't want to ask God for help. We want to try things out on our own. We take matters into our own hands, and when the mess ensues, we resist asking for help again. This time, because we're, we're you know, embarrassed or, or maybe we're ashamed, asking for help to resolve a, a mess means that we're admitting that we're at fault, and we all love to admit that we're at fault, don't we? And we don't want to admit guilt. Guilt is an uncomfortable feeling, and sorry is some of the, the most uncomfortable words there are out there. We'd rather deny it, rather ignore it, whether, you know, rather recover on our own, or maybe even justify our actions. Any justifier? Okay, don't raise your hand, but any justifiers out there, you know what I'm saying? We see this right now with the... Uh, with the college scandal and, and parents are, are trying to justify their actions of cheating to get their kids into school. We love to justify. Now we can point because it's obvious, it's on TV, but what do we do in our own lives that we justify things on? Because admitting it is painful. And yet it won't go away. The feeling that we've fallen short, that we've failed. It can eat away at us. See, our culture doesn't really have a word for this. We, we tend to psychoanalyze, uh, psychoanalyze everything, especially our shortcomings, so they can be recast as, someone, you know, as a result of somebody else's failure. You know, it's because of our parents. We all like to blame our parents for some reason. My kids will blame me for everything. I know, that's fine. We like to blame our community or maybe even poor education we received. You know, in some other way, the system has failed. Some of these things are true. Systems do carry part of the blame, but it doesn't erase the problem. If anything, it expands the problem. It just, it, it, it isn't just individuals who have failed. It's entire communities and systems and still... What is the word for that? Well, the Bible's word for that is sin. Sin is a sense of missing the mark, or failing, you know, or falling short of the of the original thing that God wanted for our lives, and and failing to be those or those things that God wanted us to be. Sin is also a rebellion. A turning away from God. Sin is a decision to move against him or going independent of him. Sin is a transgression, a, you know, a crossing of lines, about, uh, boundaries, a, you know, a, a, a violation of, of another person. And ultimately, sin is a power. Sin is sin with a capital S that holds us captive and paralyzes us to the point of shame. And it's interesting about sin is the fact that we do it so much, we start to ignore it. You know, one of the things my wife and I have been talking about lately is, is Brandon. He's getting to the age where he kind of talks back a little bit. 
you know? And maybe he's right in what he's trying to say, but the tone that he comes back with it, I'm like, whoa, hold on. I don't think so. Your answer is yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, or sorry, or something else, but it's not what you just said. That's not acceptable. If we ignore those things, if I ignored that in my child, as he grew up, what would it be? I'd have a back-talking teenager that you just want to knock to the other, you know. That's why as parents, we have to do our job. That's why as God, God has to do his job. He has to point out the sin that we, that we uh, you know, tend to forget. Uh, you know, who does, who does sin really offend? You know, we focus on ourselves. We focus on the people that we might, you know, offend and, and forget about how sin is offensive to God. God absolutely hates sin. I mean, he can't even be in the same room as sin at all. Think about that. Now, don't think too long on this next thing, but what was your last sin? Ouch. When's the last time you've been asked that question, you know? Now, did you ask God for forgiveness of that sin? Did you even recognize that that sin offended our God, our Lord, our Savior? Are we even ashamed of whatever that sin was? Well, pastor, thanks for making me feel so good today on Easter Sunday. Yay, I'm glad I came. But I'm not the one making you feel ashamed. The law of God is. For all have fallen short of the glory of God, the scriptures say. All of us, every one of us. And we should feel terrible for how our sin makes God feel. Hosea says in Hosea 14, 1, Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Our sins are our downfall. It is the root of all evil in, all, in that part of our lives. We don't think sin is as evil, but it is. Sin is what we do to each other, but ultimately it's against our Creator, the Lord God Almighty. Now you take all that together and you realize that sin is kind of a dead end, isn't it? It's kind of a game over situation. So what do we do now? There was a follower of Jesus who had fallen short in a spectacular way. In fact, his failure was so dramatic, uh, or, uh, so dramatic and so epic that a story should have really ended right there. His name was Peter. He was a follower of, uh, you know, one of his main followers and, and one of Jesus' closest friends. And his sin was not just kind of a crossing the line sin, you know, minor departure uh, or coming up, you know, a bit short. His sin was a flat-out denial of who Christ was. Three times. It's no wonder then that Peter decided, I'm going to go back fishing. I'm going to go back to to my old way of life. He seemed to, to still be around uh, the disciples, but it, but it was not quite the same. So when they heard that Jesus was alive, Peter and John ran to the, to the empty tomb, and, and John got there first, and, and Peter followed. I, I'd imagine Peter being a little kind of, you know, being a little tentative, you know, kind of, I'm not really sure. John seeing the clothes you know, lying there, uh, stained and soiled and, you know, in the empty tomb. And he immediately believed. Peter, 
You know, we don't know what he, what he thought. John doesn't say. Jesus appears to, to Mary, calling her by name, and, and then Jesus appears to all the disciples, passing through locked doors and going through walls, really kind of wild stuff as we would look at it. But, but as if that wasn't enough, Thomas goes, well, I want to see your wounds. So Jesus shows him his hands and his feet. Was Peter there, in, you know, in the room with the disciples? We don't know. John doesn't say. But then the next chapter, John gives us a long account of an encounter with, uh, with Peter and, and the risen Jesus. Peter, who was still in contact with most of the disciples, announced that he was going fishing. And they say, well, we'll go with you. I mean, were they trying to encourage their crestfallen friend? Are they, you know, trying to lift him up? I don't know. But, you know, were they trying to keep him company in the midst of, of his shame? Maybe. He says in John 21, 3, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. What must Peter have been feeling at this point? Okay, well, I guess Jesus is alive. That only kind of makes things worse, doesn't it? I mean, I shouldn't have denied him, but I did it three times. And he knows that I did it. How could I even face him? It's hard to say I'm sorry, especially when the wrong is this deep. How could Peter recover from this? Peter was supposed to be the leader. Peter was supposed to be the one. He had walked on water. He confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. Now he denied him. How could he regain any credibility with his friends? I mean, it's a wonder they still hung around the guy. You see, this is what shame does. Shame isolates us. It tells us we're the only ones. It says that our sin is unique, you know, uniquely disqualifying in life. That no one has ever done anything quite like this. It makes us the exception in the worst way we're the one person that jesus can't forgive we've done the one thing that that he cannot set right we've gone past the point of no return we've fallen that far shame tells us the game is over the end and in a sense sin is a dead end or as the bible puts it the wages of sin is death shame the kind that comes from actual guilt is not a liar it just tells us a story as it stands without jesus my son asked me this morning okay now tell me all about easter again what is easter you know he he knows it but he wants to be reassured that he knows it you know what i'm saying so i kind of go through the story and all that and you know we've talked about heaven and <clears throat> so forth and he goes so where do the people go that don't believe in Jesus? It's a great question. And the answer is hell. It's life without God. Sin is a dead end. See, I'm glad he came to Jesus without being scared to come to Jesus 
or being scared into it. You know, you know what I'm saying? He's come with the love part of Jesus. Jesus shows up in the middle of Peter's fishing trip. It says in John 21, Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your nets to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, the, uh, when, when they, did they were unable to haul the net in because of the, because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him, uh, heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. What I love about this moment is that Jesus meets Peter where he's at. He wasn't waiting for Peter to come to him. He went to go find Peter. Peter tries to retreat to his old familiar place, his old familiar habits, to his comfort zones, and Jesus comes and meets him there. This kind of reminds me of Jacob. God always meeting Jacob where Jacob was at. Jesus didn't just meet Peter there. Jesus reenacts the, the scene of Peter's first calling when he came to him. It's like he's taking Peter back to the start, back to where it all began. And as God kept telling to, to Jacob, go back to Bethel, go back to Bethel. Why? Because that's where I first met you. For Peter, something's radically different this time. You know, now the resurrection has occurred. Jesus is alive, but not his old self. This is not a, you know, like a resuscitation or something like that. Jesus, had, you know, had raised with a new kind of life. His body has been transformed into a new kind of body. And, you know, that's the part that, that John's point is, is telling us things like Jesus appearing in locked rooms and walking through walls. And, and, but he was still eating fish. You know, kind of odd things that, that John put in there. Things were that the, the were really about his resurrected body that were like his previous body, but then the, there were things that were very, very different. Resurrected life is like this. It is a completion and a perfection of all that is good and true and beautiful that we know. The resurrection changes everything. And it changed the way Jesus called Peter. When Jesus first called Peter, it was about a purpose. Follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. This time it was about a person. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He went through it, and you can go back and read the scripture. He goes through it three different times. Jesus asked Peter this question about his love. There's a whole sermon right there. Well, that's not what we're here for today. But what I want you to see is this. When we retreat in shame, Jesus comes after us again and again and again. His love never stops chasing us. His love never lets go of us. His love can change everything. When Jesus did this to Peter or for Peter, 
He wants to do the same for us. In fact, before he found Peter and spoke to him, he appeared to the disciples. You know, they were in a locked room, afraid and, and confused about what was going on, wondering if Jesus had really, you know, been raised from the dead or not, and if so, what it meant to them and so forth. And John writes in John 20, 19, on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were over, overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The risen Jesus breathes new life. The life of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the grave, is the same Spirit that he put into his followers. And he announces that true peace is theirs. When's the last time that you lived in true peace? That you didn't worry? We talked about worry last week. That you didn't fret over something. I mean, think about this. No more fear, no more shame, no more guilt, peace. The true and deep sense of being, you know, put back together in, in a sense, rebuilt, of being set right. Set right with God and set right with other people. And then Jesus, what does he do? He sends them out into the world. See, the peace was not just for them. The newness of life is not just for a select few. The good news is good news for the world, the whole world. Those on your block, those in this town, those that you meet, everywhere you go, the good news is for them. And we have a debt of love to give them because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Because of this resurrection, our sins can be forgiven. Think of it, our sins of missing the mark, of falling short, our transgressions, us crossing the line, are forgiven because Jesus died and rose again. And the power of sin that kept us bound, that paralyzes us, all those things that happened to us, that held us in the same patterns of failures in our life, is now broken. To be forgiven is to be free. Free from guilt, free from shame, free from the power that has enslaved us, and free to be fully human, to be what God made us to be, to reflect his image, to reflect his wisdom, his love taken to this world. You see, Peter's life changed that day. He went on to lead the, you know, the start of a movement of what we would call church, he preached boldly, and he suffered greatly for it. Those words take new meanings if you've read the news today. Over in Sri Lanka, a whole bunch of bombs went off. Where? In the church. He preached boldly and suffered greatly. 
He started shepherding a flock of believers and taught them what it means to be forgiven and what it means to be free. A deep love for Jesus anchored him through the most difficult of days. And all it began, it all began that day that Jesus found him on the shores and restored him. See, our lives can change today. The whole trajectory of 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 your life can change today. Maybe you thought it was game over. Maybe you were sitting there going, man, I've made too many mistakes. I'm kind of dead to, to a lot of things, uh, you know, and, and this destructive habit or whatever it is that we're caught in. But the good news is this. It's not over. It's not over. Just as it wasn't over for Jesus when he died on the cross and they buried him in the tomb. It's not over for him and it wasn't over for us because Jesus carried our sins upon that cross because God raised Jesus from the dead in victory over sin and death. That's why it's not over. Sin is not the end because the resurrection changed everything. Scripture tells us that God shows, God shows his love for us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were the enemies of God, while we were stuck in sin, and while we were caught in this trap, Jesus came and he died for you and me. And because we knew to, to, you know, how to call his name, God came running to us. And then God keeps running after us, just like he did with Peter. When we go too far, when we think it's all over, guess what? God shows up. God shows up. This is love. And it changes everything. Let's pray. Jesus, many of us are out here and maybe we feel stuck maybe we feel like we need you know help like we're at a dead end maybe we don't want to admit it maybe we've crossed the line and we feel like we've gone too far lord but but your love for us has never failed your love for us is <clears throat> means that you've come after us that there is hope there's this hope in this resurrected life, Lord, that we can grab onto. In a sense, uh, grab onto the coattails. But the coattails lead to, to heaven because we believe in you. I pray, Lord, that when we get part, you know, parts in our life where, where we even feel like we're denying something, that you come back to us and we recognize you when somebody says, that is the Lord. Thank you for your patience for us, Lord. Thank you for the peace in our life. We pray for those in Sri Lanka, Lord, that uh, <coughs> what's going on in the churches there and, and their evilness in this world. We know it, we see it, but we also know that your love is here. And we pray that you come soon. We pray for those that, uh, that, are, that are in ill health, Lord, that are, that are within our church that you watch over them. We pray for Adrian's surgery this next week. 
that as he gets his pacemaker switched out, Lord, that you just watch over them. Be with the nurses and the doctors and, and the PAs and all those that will be in the room. Be with the family. We thank you for watching over us and taking care of us and knowing that we can never stray too far because you will come laughter us, Lord. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you this week. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.